So if we, for example, there are consequences in the early grades if the teachers don't abide by that language allocation, by the time the students get to fourth, fifth, or sixth grade, they can't contend with a Spanish science text in seventh grade because that language has not been developed enough or they haven't had exposure enough. Hey everybody, welcome back to Highest Aspirations, an education podcast that explores how we can help make an impact on our nation's highest growing student demographic, English language learners. I'm your host, Steve Sophronis. How can we combat an English-only approach in education, and what is the importance of calling out cross-linguistic connections for English learners? What is metabilingual awareness, and how does it inform how we understand and develop language? How should equity be considered? both for students enrolling in dual-language programs and in the recruiting and retaining of multilingual educators. We discuss these questions and so much more with Dr. Sonia Soltero. But before we get started with this week's episode, this is the last time this season I will remind you about the Elevation Scholarship. As a reminder, we're giving away five $2,000 scholarships to deserving English learners or former English learners so they can pursue a higher education. But the application must be submitted by Friday, May 14th, which is very soon. If you know an English learner or a former English learner who deserves a scholarship, check out our blog post at elevationeducation.com slash ellcommunity. When you go there, you really can't miss it. It's right there at the top of the page. Now back to this week's episode with Dr. Sonia Soltero, who is a professor and chair of the Department of Leadership, Language, and Curriculum, and former director of the Bilingual Bicultural Education Graduate Program at DePaul University in Chicago. Dr. Soltero has numerous publications on bilingual education, English learners, and Latino education, having been involved with dual and bilingual education for more than 30 years as a dual language teacher, university professor, professional developer, and researcher. She has extensive background in design and implementation of dual language and bilingual programs and has worked with school districts as well as bilingual universities across the United States. I'm also proud to say that Dr. Sonia Soltero is a member of Elevation's advisory board. As always, thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. Dr. Sonia Soltero, thank you so much for joining us on Highest Aspirations. Thank you very much for the invitation. Yeah, it's it's my pleasure. We've uh, we've been talking about this for for a long time. We had some some calendar issues, uh, and we we're able to finally re- make it happen. So I'm really excited about it. I think the timing is great, right before summer vacation. Yes, exactly. Um, which I think we need more than anything now. But that's another conversation for another time. Um, so I want I want to start by recognizing to sort of start this conversation off that the English language seems to have this sort of incredible power um, to take over as the dominant language. Certainly in our company, our country, and maybe around the world. Not our company. I shouldn't have said that. Our country is what I meant to say. Um, this this obviously has really big effects at various levels of society. But in the context of designing and sustaining successful dual language programs. I mean, how much do we need to take that into consideration and what can we do to strike that appropriate balance between the two languages in question? That's an excellent question that uh, we all know. Uh, English is the lingua franca of, of the world. Uh, the pull of English is extremely strong in the United States and elsewhere in the, in the world as English is taking over. And so um, there are a few things. Uh, we do have a plurilingual society in the United States, a multi- multilingual society. And we have to capitalize on that. And I think that's why dual language and bilingual education and things that world language and the seal of literacy promote and, and provide those opportunities for 
those who are native English speakers to develop other languages and those who come to school with another language or languages to develop those and to maintain those. We know that um, the pool of English is, is quite strong. Uh, it is the language of status. And therefore, to combat that, we need to elevate the status of the lote, the language other than English. Um, you know, as you may know that the majority of bilingual and dual language programs are in Spanish, but there are a lot of other languages as well. Mm -hmm. And um, I always think about Glendale, California, that has uh, excellent dual language programs in multiple languages, including the only Armenian dual language program. And the reason why they have it in Glendale, California is because they have a, a population, a, a significant population of Armenian speakers. Uh, and so we, we really need to, um, what I call protecting the language other than English and protecting that uh, in pre-K through 12th grade and protecting the time. And, and perhaps later on in our conversation, we're going to talk about um, you know, translanguaging and the use of the two languages and language boundaries versus no language boundaries and what all that means. But for me and for others in the field, protecting the time that the students engage with a language other than English is very critical. We know that uh, students and you know, Kim Patowski and others have done research on dual language programs, even in 8020 and 9010 programs that where the students that are Spanish speakers start shifting to, to English by fourth or fifth grade. And so that's what we're always uh, fighting against to protect the, the language other than, than English, uh, Spanish or Russian or Chinese. Um, so it, it's critical that we have that in mind. For dual language programs in schools, it's, all, it's also, it can't be just within the classroom and within the program, but it has to be uh, across the school, across the school district, right. to give value and to give a presence and visibility to the language and culture other than English. Yeah, you know, the last thing that you said really resonated with me, everything you did, uh, everything you said did, but that last part, um, you know, the, the value and the visibility and protecting the language, it reminded me of a conversation we had with um, a woman by the name of Dr. Carolina Lopez, who's on the border. Uh, in Texas. And, you know, the whole premise of that conversation where it was that even on the border where 90% plus of the population is bilingual in Spanish, English is still the dominant language. And there are still those, um, those kind of ghosts of the past, she called it. Um, and she quoted it from someone else. I don't remember who it was, but la, la, la herida abierta, right? The open wound. We have to heal this. Um, and that's like that ghost of English as the dominant language. And even in those societies where you have a population, a huge part of the population that's bilingual, they still sort of defer to English. So I think that that it goes to directly what you were just talking about. Right. And I think also uh, institutionalizing uh, bilingual education, dual language, uh, the seal of biliteracy is kind of institutionalized in some respect because it's, it's uh, it has been legislated into law in 42 states plus the District of Columbia. Uh, so it, it's it's like if it's sanctioned at the highest levels and it's institutionalized at the highest level, that sends a message to society that this is valued, not just for English speakers who are learning, you know, um, languages as a foreign language or as a word language, but for those who come again with those languages already. And we should capitalize on their linguistic capital that they bring with them, not squander it away. Sure. Yeah, that top-down approach, along with kind of a bottom-up approach, I guess, is kind of where you reach that that where you want to go. 
All right. Yeah. And you did talk about, we're going to get into the trans languaging and everything like that, which we are. And I want to kind of start to get into that now. Um, my background is I was a high school um, Spanish teacher for, for many years, um, which was a position that I started quite by accident. Um, and I was uh, probably not as proficient as I needed to be in Spanish when I started, but I, I learned a lot along the way from the students I had. And many of them were uh, heritage speakers of Spanish. And, you know, I, I dabbled in some sort of cross-linguistic connections. I'd take the time to analyze different words like cognates and idiomatic expressions. It was always fun for me in both English and Spanish. But I think that's what it was. It was like fun and interesting for me and for my students. But but we now know, and you talk a lot about the topic of these cross-linguistic connections as a, as a way deeper than I think I was going into it. Um, talk to us a little bit about that. Like, what is the is the real value of that? Because I was just scraping the surface, and I think many of us are. Right. So the cross-linguistic connections, it's been around, but I think it's come to the forefront in the last maybe 10 years or so. And, and it's really a critical, we, we are like many scholars in the field, so we're not two monolinguals in, in, in one body. We, we have one body and one brain that shares those two or three or more languages, and those languages interact in our brains. So we need to bring that to the forefront and, and teach the cross-linguistic connections. And the more we teach the cross-linguistic connections to the students, the more they start internalizing that and start thinking like you and I will do. Uh, I'm always thinking and I'm always looking around when I go outside, when I'm um, browsing the internet, when I get an email, uh, those things pop out at me, you know, the, the, the differences and similarities between, I only speak two languages, Spanish and English, and, and it's fascinating. And so that's what we want the students early on, even in preschool, in kindergarten, um, to start thinking about the, the, how the two languages or more languages that they have, how they're different, how they're the same, how they can help or hinder sometimes, right? Yeah, the other language. So I, I think that's very critical to, to include that. Um, there, there is such a, you know, everybody knows about bridge, the bridge um, that is sort of like a, um, a, an organized and, and pre-planned lesson around cross-linguistic connections so is very valuable, but it also needs to happen throughout the day, mm -hmm. teachable moments. And I call those the 60 second or the 120 second, two minute uh, mini lessons when things come up, especially with uh, romance languages. There are a lot of similarities and things that we can make comparisons. One of the, the, the objectives uh, or standards in literacy is compare and contrast. So that's what we're doing. We're comparing and contrasting our two languages. And so for romance languages and English, there's so many things, um, you know, beyond, and I, I talk, cognates is very, very important, but it has to go beyond cognates. Right. Uh, so what do we do beyond cognates in, ter in terms of grammar, in terms of morphological aspects of like, like prefixes and suffixes, um, you know, the, the roots, the origins of those words, where do they come from, you know, having the students um, do a, 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 like mini research projects around language, around vocabulary, morphology, and also semantics and pragmatics. So for example, in Spanish, um, you can have a paragraph that, as you know, that is uh, a one sentence long. 
And in English, it's, it's shorter. You run on sentences are no good. We have run on sentences in Spanish too, but so it's a different discourse style mm-hmm. in writing and also in speaking uh, in Spanish and other Romance languages. It's a lot more uh, going around in circles or embellishing, whereas in English, it's more of a direct get from point A to point B. So those are the kinds of things that go beyond cognate that we need to teach. And then hopefully the students will be so excited and we'll see sort of the magic of those linguistic connections that they'll start loving language and loving, I I call myself a word nerd. uh, It's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And, you know, we, it's one of those things like, um, you know, I don't necessarily want to compare it to learning math or another content area, but it's the same concept as under, learning to love it, right? Understanding, applying it to everyday situations. And I, I suppose you and I are a little biased because I think we both fell in love with this whole idea of languages in an early age. But there are things that, you know, I've seen my own students, you know, you see the light bulb go off and you see the ideas. And that's a different context because it's speakers of English learning Spanish, but they're seeing those connections. And now, you know, we've heard about metacognition for for a long time, like understanding how it is that you learn. And now there's this, I want to go deeper into this, this new thing that it's not so new anymore, but it's like, I think it's exciting. I think a lot of people don't know a whole lot about it. And that's um, metabilingual awareness, which is what I think what you were just talking about that, but what, what role does that play in language development, like in the, in, in both languages and, and why do we need to know about that term and, and sort of how it's played out? Right. So, so we, like you said, we talk about metacognition, thinking about our thinking, and in the linguistic field and the bilingual well, bilingual field, talking about meta metalinguistic. So, metalinguistic awareness and so thinking about language and how language works and um, why do we use language the way we use it and when do we use it? So, registers and all those type of things. And so, the metabilingual awareness, uh, something that I that I coined, that it, it's more than metalinguistic, is, is really speaking about the metabilingual awareness between two or more languages, or meta uh, multilingual awareness, and how the two or more languages um, compare, contrast, um, how we can use uh, that meta, that thinking of our, our two languages, how we can use that to our advantage in in thinking about you know, as we write, for example. And so I have two languages in my head. And so I have to sort of, you know, suppress one and, and activate the other. And that's all that uh, neuro-linguistic research uh, from Bialystok and others that make us really understand language at a deeper level and make us understand language, the two languages, if you're bilingual or more than two languages, and how that helps us develop um, both academic and social language and understanding registers in both languages and, and use that to the advantage to continue to progress. Because as you know, we are um, lifelong learners of language. Um, we never uh, arrive. We never <laughs> achieve full proficiency in any language because we're always learning. Right. Uh, and language is so vast that uh, it's impossible for any human being to completely and entirely become fully proficient in all the variations in all the um, content language specific and professional specific. Um, and I always give the example of reading the tax code. Um, we, I speak English, I can read the tax code, but I probably don't understand half of it because I'm not trained. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm not an accountant. If I were an accountant, I would be quite proficient in that particular register of language. 
Right. Yeah, that's a great example. And I could probably I could probably come up with about 10 off the top of my head. There's so many things that I don't un seem to understand when I'm when I'm reading in English or in Spanish. Um, you know, devil's advocate a little bit and pushing back some. I mean, isn't there a little tension there, like between this idea uh, of, of translanguaging and metabilingual awareness and keeping languages separate from one another? I mean, you talked about English as a dominant language earlier, and certainly that can create some tension. And I talked about kind of, you know, talking about Dr. Catalina Lopez and her conversation about uh, La Rida Abierta and all this stuff. But but how do we mitigate that tension that 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 exists to create programs that allow for you know the maximum amount of language learning and content mastery? Because we're not just language is in many cases the key to open the door to the content that students need to know. Right. So yeah, I think I think there there's a bit of misunderstanding about those of us in the field that sort of you know promote some language boundaries. Um, you know, if, if I always say that if you think about the dual language models are called the, the 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 names of dual language are based on language allocation 50 50 80 20 90 10 that's, mm -hmm. that's what the models are called because that's the the percentage of time or the, the allocation ratio that that we provide in the lotte right so uh, if we don't they're called that because if we don't check on that and make sure that indeed we're doing 50 percent in in the lotte or 80 percent or 90 percent in the early grades in those models how do we keep track of the amount of time that we are spending and the students are spending in those languages and as we said before the the shift to english the pull of english is so strong it used to be within the third generation so the, the grandchildren no longer speak the, the language of the grandparents. And now we see it within the two generations where yeah. sometimes we have the parents don't speak English and the kids have shifted to English and either refuse to, to speak the, the lote or the language of the home. So how do we protect the language other than English? We have to protect it. English, there's again, very strong pull. That is not to mean that the students themselves cannot use their language, all their language repertoire, the, all their language, uh, the two languages, and use them simultaneously. Now, so when we say that we need to have language boundaries, that's sort of like an accountability system for the program and for the teachers. Right. That the teachers should, uh, and the, the instructional materials should be whatever percentage of time uh, at each of the grade levels so if I'm, if I am in an, I don't know, in an 80-20 program and by third grade, I'm doing 60-40, how am I accountable as a teacher and as a program that I'm actually doing that? Because it gets away from us. Uh, and I remember when I was a dual language teacher and then a coordinator where um, we found that the, the, the English native speakers after three or four years in the program could not string uh, a sentence together in Spanish. And we also found that the, the Spanish speaking students were shifting to English very quickly. And then we did a language count and we realized we were not doing as much mm -hmm. Spanish as we thought we were. So I, I think the, 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 the controversy is around what are the students, can, what can the students use? They can use the two repertoires or three or however many, but we have to have some accountability because it's, it's a, a systematic program that goes across grade levels. So if we, for example, there are consequences in the early grades, if the teachers don't abide by that language allocation, by the time the students get to fourth, fifth or sixth grade, 
they can't contend with a Spanish science text in seventh grade because that language has not been developed enough or they haven't had exposure enough uh, or development of that academic language in, in science, for example, right? So I think that's where, where so th there's this controversy. Also, um, my view and other people's view is that we, we do have to protect the time and we have to also make sure that the students are able to develop sufficient, English is gonna be developed, but for example, Armenian or Chinese or Spanish, are the students, are we preparing the students to be able to, con to, to communicate and interact either with a book or with a speaker of that language who is only a speaker of that language, mm -hmm, who's not mm -hmm. bilingual? So if I come across a Spanish speaker and doesn't know any English, as a, as a translanguager, can I shift to only English? Can I yeah. shift to only Spanish? And that's problematic. Yeah, if we're talking to another bilingual, no problem. Right, we can right. language all we want. But what if we're not talking to another bilingual? Or we're reading a book only in Spanish? Can, yeah, I, I, can I tread through that book if it's a complex, you know, has complex language in Spanish? Uh, I might not be able to do that. Yeah, kind of the the reality versus the artificial, right? The artificial being created sometimes in a classroom with people who are who are who are on the same page in many ways. I'm really glad you brought that up. I'm also and I also really appreciate your very. It's kind of a it's it's a it's a an approach that's based in reality and logic, which which I appreciate because at times we can get away from those things when we let kind of emotions take over, which I think, which I think is that's my own like anecdotal point of view, but I think that happens. And for you to, it seems seems like you're saying, you know, we need those those boundaries a in balance. terms, yeah, and we balance. need and a balance, right? It very much a structure and agency thing. You you said many times just now that students are can use their whole language repertoire, whatever it is, at their discretion. But it's up to us as designers of programs and as teachers and as school leaders to create programs that ensure the the proper structure so that we're making. Uh, our way in the in the in the right direction and, um, and there's also you know registers and purposes so i'm all for for um having the translanguaging like poetry in two languages where you mix them I, I love books like that uh you can really play with the two languages and make sure that the two languages the the, the, the grammatical structures are followed by by mixing the two and using the two simultaneously but there is a place and a time for those kind of things so i think we can develop that uh, sort of um, what I call a third language. Um, you know, Spanglish is a third language. Yeah. Can you speak Spanglish? Yeah. And be proud of that. And be, you know, this is um, fascinating. It can be very um, rich, particularly in the United States, because there's so many Spanish speakers uh, and bilingual Eng Spanish English speakers. But also, can we separate when needed? Right. right. Register and purpose and audience and all those things. Yeah. Yeah, it makes it makes a lot of sense. I really appreciate that that uh, response to that question, very thorough. And I think you actually got. I was going to ask you specifically about the advantage um, between maintaining a separation, but I think we we got to that. Hi everyone, I'm Teddy Rice, president and co-founder of Elevation. The Highest Aspirations podcast was created to keep you informed and inspired around the issues that matter most to the students you serve. We'd love the opportunity to talk with you about how we can help strengthen your EL program. Reach out to us anytime at info at elevationeducation.com to set up a time to chat. Now, back to highest aspirations. 
yeah, I want to I want to try to zoom in a little bit. Um, each student, no matter sort of what language or languages they're speaking, um, is going to bring in their own language repertoire to whatever class or whatever context they're they're in. Um, so, bringing it down to like individual educators who are working with lots of students who with lots of different skills and lots of different levels, how can they go about sort of celebrating that linguistic and cultural diversity that their students bring? while also teaching them when it's kind of appropriate to use different parts of their language repertoire or different registers, as, as you've mentioned, because that's where it gets tricky, right? Like we can make these uh, sort of policy uh, or, or administrative decisions, but when it comes down to being in a classroom and you're a teacher working with all these students, how do, how do we do that? Well, that, that's, that's interesting because for example, I, I have talked about before, you know, um, language, changes language is not static so we borrow from other languages and that's a, a reality and that has happened for you know centuries and that's what language is it moves it it borrows from other languages it adapts from other languages and so for example i i think it enriches you know in the united states um things like parquear you know if you go to latin america spain you don't say parquear and by the way parquear is now the, the, the Spanish Academy uh, in Spain has uh, accepted. Oh, it's, it's, it's now, Estacionar is out now. Well, it's, it's still in. Oh, Estacionar is still there. Parqueado okay. is yeah. okay. Because they're synonyms, right? Yeah, 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 or yeah. or lonche yeah. or, or what? That, that's normal. That's fine. That's yeah. not bad Spanish, as some might say. Uh, that's just the evolution of, of language and the evolution of Spanish in particular, where we call the, the Spanish of the United States, um, Estadounidismos, right? Mm -hmm. So, that's the thing because there's so many what now around 50 million Spanish speakers in the in the US and so that that, that enriches enriches English enriches Spanish um, and so how do teachers navigate that and there are some teachers that might think that's just colloquial that's slang that is not proper Spanish I, I don't subscribe to that um, However, the students should also learn sort of the more standard variety, estacionar uh, or almorzar. And by the way, it's, that's why Spanish particularly is so challenging because almorzar, if you talk to um, people from Northern Mexico, which my husband is, uh, almorzar is, is breakfast. Yeah. Uh, and for other parts of the Latin American world, almorzar is lunch. Yeah. And so, and so this, is, this is what teachers need. Teachers need to be linguist in some sense. Um, I need to understand that there, that there are varieties and, you know, as I'm sure you know, there the, the prescriptive grammarians and the descriptive grammarians. I'm a descriptive grammarian. I'm not, you know, what's proper, what's not proper, but there are standard varieties and there are regional varieties. And so we have to con consider all of that. And for bilingual Spanish teachers, it is a challenge. I was a, a bilingual teacher and a dual language teacher. And I had kids from Puerto Rico and Mexico and Central America mm -hmm. and from Colombia. And there were differences in, in the way that they expressed not just vocabulary. I remember um, a Colombian parent that came to talk to me and me estaba tuteando. And so, you know, in other parts of the world now, you're supposed to, you know, be the formal, usted, not yep. tú. yep. And yet, like in northern Mexico, uh, it's very common for their children to uh, be very formal with usted to their parents. So all those kind of things we need to learn uh, as bilingual teachers. Yeah. And boy, it is tricky and it is challenging. And so 
I guess it boils down to the understanding that you need to appreciate that language is different and that it changes and that there are different contexts for different things. And if you make a mistake, I guess that you, you, you own up to it a little bit because you're going to make mistakes. I certainly have made plenty, plenty, plenty with my Spanish. And I borrow from um, Geneva Smitherman, who has done, he, she's a, a linguist scholar, education scholar uh, around African-American language and varieties. And so that's sort of, and I've always been fascinated by her work and others work on African-American language and, you know, black language and and how that, that whole concept is very much uh, applicable, especially to the Spanish, the many Spanish varieties that are Spanish varieties around regions of Latin America, but within countries as well. Right. So if you take Mexico, you know, how they speak in Mexico City or in Chiapas or in Chihuahua, quite different. The accents are different. The, the, some of the vocabulary is different. So it, it's, uh, we have to be more open to, to varieties, regional varieties, uh, borrowing and, and the change of language. Yeah. And if we're open, we're not only open in a sense that we're being more accepting, but we're also opening ourselves up to just the 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 vast richness of different dialects in different places and and just learning to respect language more which i think is is an amazing thing um okay you know i want to there's like two more topics that i that i really want to hit on here one is a one is a they're both big ones but one of them is one that we've seen i think in a lot of places that's this idea um, of gentrification and everybody wanting to have their students in dual language programs um, you've called it a, a boutique approach to dual language. So, I mean, how do we offer equitable access with everything that's going on? We've talked about this in the podcast before. We've heard some good ideas, but it continues to be, I think, a pretty big issue. Yeah, so I think the, the number one um, premise for dual language should be the focus is always on English learners or what I've, I, I'm trying to get away from using English learners because it's yeah. very English centric. Yep. And so I'm now using developing bilinguals. I don't really like emergent bilinguals because they move on from being emergent. They, they move, you know, they become more proficient as they I, go along. I will tell you, not to interrupt, but I have had this conversation so many times with folks around elevation, just thinking about like, how do we, but, how do we, what is a better name for it? Like, how can we, you know, but it's just like such a, it shouldn't be so difficult, but it is. But I really appreciate your effort and you yeah, bring it up. Terminology is always, so I call, I, I, I'm trying to refer to developing bilinguals. Now, developing bilinguals has a, a bit of a problem because developing bilinguals could also be the English dominant students in dual language program. They're right. also developing bilinguals in, right. in the lotte, right? Uh, but talking about English um, as a second language, developing bilinguals who are acquiring English as a second language, it's um, it, it becomes a, a little challenging in, in terms of how we look at um, providing and focusing on their education. They are the ones that come in, um, you know, trying to uh, catch up with English-speaking students and catch up with the the curriculum that is mostly in English and everything's English-centric in in the majority of districts. The assessments, the high stakes assessments are in English. So the focus should always be on these developing bilinguals who are learning English as a second language. And that's the primacy of any dual language program. And so, you know, Guadalupe Valdez said it a long, long time ago that we have to be very, very careful about um, the, 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 the use of English learners 
for the benefit of English dominant students in dual language programs. Yeah. And so I think the, the, the policies, the foundational premises were districts and school leaders that the, they have to be very um, intentional about who is the primary um, population to provide that bilingual and biliteracy development. Easier said than done. Uh, in some districts and in some uh, regions and in some scholars, um, they subscribe to, you know, dual language should only be one way, should only be for the English uh, developing bilinguals who are developing English as a second language. I don't subscribe to that. I think if, if a program is well designed with English learners as their primacy uh, focus, then um, I think they benefit from having access to English speaking students. Yeah. Yeah. I think you said it right. Easier said than done, but having that premise, I think, and that belief that it should be designed primarily for English learners, um, I think makes sense to our audience. And I would, I would, I would add to that. And I would be interested to hear what you said or what you, what you, how you react is that, um, if it benefits the English learners, then it's also going to benefit the students who are coming in who are not English learners, right? I mean, right. The, the sort of general premise here is that good good education and good good strategies for English learners are good for 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 all students, particularly when it comes to language acquisition. And, and I also think that that um, you know school districts and and programs can capitalize in making sure that the English uh, native population or dominant population has access to authentic exposure and learning about the cultures uh, of the language other than English the yeah. in those programs. So that, that's like sort of that uh, societal mm -hmm. shift and change to, ha to having more openness about others rather yeah. than have, you know, so we're just focusing on, on, on language. We need to really, and that's one of the things that in dual language programs often is left aside to, we need to bring to the forefront the, the cultural aspect of the, the three universal goals of dual language. One of them is multicultural competencies. And we need to focus on the, the cultures of the, the lote in, those, in those, um, those dual language programs. Yeah, and that might be more valuable now than maybe ever. So that's a, yes. that's a key component. All right. One more sort of challenge question that, that I'm sure people are thinking about right now. I certainly think about it all the time. And we've actually dedicated um, episodes to this question. Um, and that is that everything that we've just discussed sort of assumes that schools have qualified teachers in place. I mean, you mentioned earlier that in some ways teachers need to be linguists. Um, this is a challenge. Uh, what are some ways that we can go about increasing our pool of teachers to staff successful dual language programs? I mean, are there, there's these homegrown approaches, there's higher education, there's everything in between. What are some ways that you've seen that have been successful? So the field of biliteracy is a, is a natural pathway. Um, how do we attract those students who are already in middle school or even before in high school you know, getting, going IP, um, AP or IB or, you know, getting into to language programs. Um, and for those students who are, who were uh, developing bilinguals in elementary and they've continued to develop their, their native language and getting them in high school into doing, you know, service learning. Some districts require service learning, others don't. And going into elementary schools. 
and sort of getting a sense and exposure to what it's like to be a teacher, what it's like to tutor kids and, and you know, getting them perhaps into the teaching profession or starting to think about the teaching profession earlier on. And so all those kids who are getting the seal of biliteracy could be tapped and not all of them, but some of them, but how do you tap them? It's too late once they exit and go into, into college. That needs to be sort of be thought out before they leave and having those exposures to what it's like to teach. Um, so we could incorporate that, the seal of biliteracy, service learning in, in the field of education. Um, I think teacher preparation, teacher preparation, I'm in teacher preparation, Bilingual education is a, an aside. Mm -hmm. And usually in teacher preparation programs, there's one uh, person like me uh, who is bilingual education or maybe two. And so how do we get the teacher, the general teacher preparation mindset to incorporate uh, bilingual uh, endorsement and bilingual coursework and all those things? Um, and then, of course, you mentioned the grow your own uh, in terms of you know, as uh, paraprofessionals and providing maybe partial stipends um, and helping the, the, those paraprofessionals become certified bilingual teachers. One thing that is critical is that one thing is recruiting bilingual teachers and another different thing is retain, retention. You're right, right. Bilingual teachers have more work. The, the workload is heavier. The workload is more pressured because students uh, have to achieve academically in English tests. And so bilingual, I don't think uh, a lot of people understand the pressures that bilingual teachers have in terms of expediting or you know, accelerating the students' English acquisition. And so you, you often see bilingual teachers leaving bilingual, bilingual classrooms and going into English-only classrooms because the pressures are too much. Right. So, and in that respect, um, principals and school leaders and district leaders really have to pay attention and have equity for bilingual teachers. To, what's the equity? More time to plan, uh, maybe less bureaucracy, maybe le fewer, uh, less paperwork for them to do, uh, not tapping them to translate everything. Yeah. Or, or you know, they have to on their own find materials in the lotte. The, the district should provide those things. So it, retention is a big problem in general for teachers across the board, but especially bilingual teachers. Yeah, we've seen that too. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's, um, it's interesting. Again, you seem to, you, you bring up the seal of literacy, which we've talked about a lot. And, and I think you're absolutely right about that. But there's this like bottom up and top down approach once again, like you need both elements to be working to make that happen. Um, and, you know, it's... Um, it's, it's a really, really interesting thing to think about leveraging the people in our communities who are ready, willing, and able in many cases with little support um, to do that work. We talk a lot about um, family engagement and bringing you know, uh, families in, parents in to, to help with in schools. And it doesn't have to be a formal thing, but like you can make pipelines that way. I mean, it's proven to be challenging. And you know, I feel like one of the things that certainly when I was uh, just starting out teaching many years ago. And even when I was in school myself, it seemed like the, the idea was, well, let's bring in teachers from other countries to, to teach, but that's like a bandaid, right? Because it doesn't last. They don't stay long. They don't become members of the community. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, it's a nice thing to, but, um, 
Yeah, you notice I didn't mention that. I did, that, yeah. That, that is nice. But the problem with that is that, number one, they usually only have visas for two years. Uh, it's expensive for a district to do all the paperwork and all that. But also, in my experience, is that even here in Chicago, public schools, is that they, they don't have the infrastructure. And in other uh, districts that I worked with in New York and other states, they don't have the infrastructure to do the onboarding, to do like a comprehensive onboarding of the types of, oftentimes these teachers come from uh, school systems that are, tend to be more traditional, tend to, you know, there are differences, there are cultural differences, there are climate differences, there are differences in approach to how we teach and discipline and all those kind of things. And the onboarding is not sufficient. And oftentimes these teachers don't do well, not because they're not good teachers, but because they haven't had that uh, sufficient training Right. Shift the mindset of how they did it in their home countries and how how they're doing education here. Um, yeah, it seems like it might be like a, a temptation for a quick fix when actually over time it's going to cause more work and cost more money. And, and you want um, longevity, right? With, with teachers to to the students to have the teachers and to be in schools for a long time, not like a, a turnover every two or three years because they have to leave because of their visas. Yeah, of course. Great. Well, we've covered a lot of ground, but there's certainly a million more things we could talk about. But for the sake of time, I'm going to go to my last two questions. The, the first of which is a question that we ask everybody. Um, and we actually have a blog post coming out with with 10 summer reads really, really soon, all from guests on the podcast. I'm going to ask you the same question. And that is, um, if there's a book or other resource that, uh, that has influenced you either personally or professionally that you'd like to share. Yes, yeah, so um, I think the, the first one, one of the first books a long, long time ago, um, it, it, the first edition of Sonia Nieto's Affirming Diversity, that, that book had a, a huge impact. It's now in the seventh edition, and she has, um, a, she has a co-author, uh, Patty Boat. Uh, but the Sonia Nieto Affirming Diversity for many, many years ago really made an impact on me. Uh, the work by Geneva Smitherman on African-American language, uh, and then the work by Tove uh, Skutnap Kangas, who is a linguist uh, educator from a scholar from uh, Finland. Um, it's, it's fascinating about you know, linguistic rights across the, the globe and how that, that also is very much uh, connected to what we, we, we struggle with in, in the United States as well in, term, in terms of, of students and families' linguistic rights. Yeah, I love that there's an international approach there. You mentioned three. I'm familiar with one, but not two. So it's always a nice thing for me too to hear about new stuff to read. That's great. Um, and obviously, you're doing a lot of great work in the field as well. How can people learn about the work you're doing? Um, what's an easy way they can find out? So um, my two latest books are Dual Language Education, um, so Program Design and Implementation, and my school-wide approaches um, to uh, English learners, which it was, that was a long time ago that I, I wrote that 10 years ago. Things have changed. Um, and also I have, I, I recently published, I did some research, uh, I recently wrote an article. Uh, it's called, it's, it might be a little bit difficult to, to get, uh, it's from the University of Ottawa. It's called Dual Language in Higher Education, Post-Secondary Discipline-Based Bilingual Immersion. And it's in current issues in university immersion. Because now we have to expand to the university. Right. So in the United States right now, as far as I know, we have two universities. Uh, one is University of Texas, Rio Grande Valley, that has a bilingual 
um, offerings and programs, degrees that are bilingual in Spanish and English. Another one is Ana Jimenez, um, based in Puerto Rico, but they have campuses in the U.S. How do we expand that into yeah. the university, you know, colleges to offer, I don't know, a degree in sociology that is bilingual right. in Spanish and English, for example. It's amazing. Um, it makes total sense that, yeah. and it's just crazy that it's not happening more. And that's another way, another pathway for also getting, you know, one of the things I didn't mention is change of career. Uh, people who are yeah. going to, I don't know, uh, business or accountancy or whatever, and they might be bilingual and biliterate and come into the education field and we could tap into those change of careers. Absolutely. So, there are lots of opportunities, lots of challenges, but lots of opportunities. Yeah, for sure. And that's a great note to end it on. Lots of opportunities. Um, well, Dr. Sonia Soltero, thank you so much for, for joining us. It's been a long time coming. I really, really enjoyed this conversation, as I'm sure uh, our listeners do too. I so much appreciate well, it. And I've learned so much from you as well. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. If you liked our show, please be sure to join the ELL community at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community, where you'll find all the episodes of Highest Aspirations and other resources to help educators maximize the impact on their English language learners. Also, let us know how we're doing by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts.